Hi, and welcome to the Plant-Based Recruiter Podcast. This is the first in a series of interviews with influential plant-based leaders. I want to learn about their journeys, what motivates them, and how their companies are making a difference in the world. First up is Christopher Kong, co-founder of Better Nature, the world's first food tech company focused solely on tempeh fermentation. Chris's story is amazing. He's a degree from Oxford University in molecular biochemistry and has recently just raised over 1.6 million pounds in funding for the company. Here we cover a range of topics from boxing to the effects of plastic on environmental degradation. I hope you enjoy it and let me know your feedback. Chris, well, thanks so much for, for joining me today. Um, so you're one of the, the co-founders of Better Nature and also the, the head of business development. For those of you who don't know, Better Nature is the world's first food tech company uh, focused on tempeh fermentation, which is an ancient food processing technology uh, which produces high-protein meat alternatives. So, yeah, what, what's not to like, eh? You've got it. You've got it. No, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for having me, Mark. Great, great. Um, and I was looking at the the kind of the accolades that you've you've received as a company already. You know, you've been in Forbes, Telegraph. Uh, the grocer and and won four food tech competitions already is that right yeah i think i think it is four i, I can't quite <laughs> no, remember and I'm, I'm not just saying that like <laughs> but something like that yeah 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 fantastic so it's obviously you know quite a story so can you start by telling me a bit about um your your journey to, to co-founding the company chris yeah absolutely so um I, yeah I, I guess it all really started when I applied for this random biotech conference that was taking place at the University of Cambridge. And there was the conference, the conference was called the Gap Summit. And what the Gap, Gap Summit was all about was largely a biotech slash pharmaceutical conference, but um, it was more to get all these leaders of tomorrow, as they called them. So 100 students from around the world that, were, that applied and were selected to participate in this physical conference um, to learn about all the different gaps within um, the biotech industry okay. and to propose solutions to fill those gaps. And it was an, you know, an epic three-day event with amazing lectures and, and discussions led by the C-suites of you know, the world's largest pharmaceutical and biotech companies. <clears throat> and as part of this conference, they about two months before the conference, they sort of grouped up the 100 delegates into teams of five. And in these teams of five, they assigned us a mentor and told us that we have two months to come up with a business idea, to come up with a business plan, to create a really engaging pitch. And the top seven teams of the 20 teams would then be able to pitch on the main stage of this conference. And the winner would get some money, not huge amounts, I think it was about 5,000 pounds, okay. to start, start the business. So um, at that time, I was a... In my final year of university, I applied, and I just so happened to be put into the same team as one of our now co-founders, Amadeus, who, yeah, at that time was doing his PhD on tempeh fermentation, and um, I was doing my master's in biochemistry. So, um, yeah, literally, you know, a random we were randomly grouped up, and we had a introductory Google Meets call, and we just got on so well from day one. And we were, I think, spiritually aligned. And spirituality is not very, is not often discussed in the business world, no. right? Um, but I think it's really important when finding 
other partners and other people you want to spend Absolutely. so much time with. You know, you can't just be aligned on the commercial aspects of the business. You also need to be aligned on a more deeper level. And for lack of a better word, I sort of just call that spirituality. Yeah. And, you know, we both um, saw ourselves coming from positions of great influence. Um, there are not many people, for example, that graduate from the University of Oxford every year, yet there are countless problems in the world that need to be solved imminently. And, you know, if not us, then who? So that, that was sort of the, the, the approach that we had. And just so great to have met someone, uh, to, yeah, to meet someone that shared exactly those same thoughts. And um, we brainstormed different ideas and Ben Nature, well, the embryonic, very, very early stages of what Ben Nature is today stemmed from those initial discussions and uh, from winning that competition at, at the Gap Summit. Oh, wow. So, and you, you won the, the competition as well? Yeah, yeah it, was, it, was a, it was super fun. I mean, it wasn't easy. We worked super, super hard and we were up against some amazing, amazing other teams. Um, and I think some, some other teams are still you know, pushing the ideas forward and have actually become you know, established businesses in their own right. So, uh, but yeah, we just got lucky on the day. That's, I guess. that's amazing. That's amazing. And were you were you vegetarian or vegan at this point, or is that is that a journey that you you kind of gone on since? So I was a transitioning vegetarian. Okay. At that point, yeah. Um, I, I think it just became apparent to me, or well, largely because of Ellen. So Ellen, being our head of marketing and a fellow co-founder of Bed Nature, uh, we were in the same college together at university and she was a diehard vegan you know she'd been vegan i think by that point for at least three or four years uh, and a vegetarian for many more years before seven or eight years before and um yeah i guess she was so convincing that before long our entire friendship group became either vegan or vegetarian oh wow she really and, is influential yeah yeah exactly and i myself as um you know i grew up in hong kong and in Hong Kong, meat, and in Chinese culture, really, meat is everything. It's the center of the plate. You don't have a meal without meat. Okay. And so when I first started at, at, at uni, and, you know, I, I went to boarding school here in the UK, but even there, like, you know, everyone was eating meat. There was no, there, there was no consideration even for someone who was vegetarian or vegan. I, I don't know what they did for people that didn't want to eat meat. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I have no idea. Uh, it just wasn't part of our vocabulary, you know, being vegetarian or vegan. But going to university, that, you know, really opened up my eyes. And, you know, Ellen, obviously, the message that she preached, I then watched Cowspiracy. And before long, I just found myself thinking, you know, why the heck am I eating yeah. beef? You know, there's no use for this and it's awful. So I stopped eating beef and then stopped eating pork. And it just sort of um, snowballed into me being yeah, I based basically vegetarian by the time I started or well, by okay. the time this conference took place. This was in the spring of 2018 and then became fully vegan that summer. So the um, summer of 2018. Yeah. Yeah. So I read somewhere that you were you were a keen boxer as well at university. Did you did you yeah. manage to uh, convert any of your boxing team to uh, to the vegetarian or vegan ways? Unfortunately not. I mean, you know, I got asked you know, why, you know, surely this will impact your performance, surely, you know, this, that, and the other. But I won my fight. You know, I was only one of three people from 
the Oxford side to, to win the fights and um, worked super hard, you know, uh, had to lose a lot of weight. So trying to adopt a plant-based diet while mm. trying to lose I think about seven kilos to make weight. To make the weight category, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And for the last two weeks, couldn't eat any fiber. So I was relying on dense sort of uh, broccoli, you know, so not nutritionally dense, but physically dense foods okay. to yeah. make myself feel full enough to go to bed in order to make weight. But all those physically dense foods contain fibers and I had to cut them out. So that was painful, Gosh, uh, but I did it. I did it and um, won my fight and uh, was a unanimous victory. So I, 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 don't know, I, I did I did vegans everywhere or vegetarians everywhere. You did them a service. Proud. Yeah, yeah, great stuff, great stuff. So from, from talking about Sort of pack, pack, packing the uh, the protein. Can you tell me a bit more, Chris, about the the fermentation process? I know you've kind of got a few patents. You might not be able to go into too much detail, um, but that that really interests me. What what's what's the story behind that? Yeah, absolutely. So you know, tempeh fermentation is actually a three hundred year old technology. Wow. It originated in Java, which is the main central island of Indonesia, and essentially it involves cooked soybeans and um, fungal starter cultures. So spores from indigenous fungi, mushrooms, mm -hmm. and it is just the marriage of plant protein and mushroom protein. So what happens is that the uh, mushroom spores sporulate um, and they grow around the plant-based protein. So for us, that's soybeans. And as they grow, they wrap up the soybeans in this matrix or in this sort of spongy material that it is itself made of pure protein. And that's its mycelium. That's effectively the body, the, the underground portion of the mushroom that no yes. one ever sees. And that then, you know, they secrete all sorts of different enzymes which digest away the fats and digest away the carbohydrates of the plant-based protein. So for us, the soybeans and, you know, produce protein um, and in fact, a completely, you know, a complete source of protein, a source of protein that has all the essential amino acids that one needs um, to, to live healthily. And after about 24 hours, you end up with tempeh, which is a you know, perfectly fermented block of soybeans and mushroom protein, which can then be sliced and diced and marinated and cooked in all the ways that meat is traditionally prepared. I guess how this really differs from, say, tofu is that, you know, with tofu, you're just using the milk of the soybeans. Mm -hmm. So you go through a milling process, you extract milk, and then you just coagulate the milk. Um, so you, uh, you denature all the proteins such that they sort of curdle up. Okay. But with this fermentation process, you're leveraging so much more of the bean. And because you retain all the fiber or most of the fiber of that bean, you have this like, structural backbone to the product that can mimic the bite and the mouthfeel of meat in the same way that many, many other all natural meat alternatives cannot. Yeah, yeah. I think it's, it's an amazing story, isn't it? That it's, it's a process which is so, so ancient, but to, you know, to bring it up to the, to the present time and, and the work that you're doing at Better in Nature, it's, um, it's, it's, it's great. So, 
So yeah, so Chris, just with your, your background, I know you were involved in kind of early stage startups um, prior to, um, to, to Veterinature. Did they kind of shape your, your decisions that you, you've made within the business, would you say? Yes, yeah, absolutely. I think, um, yeah, when I say was when I was involved with early stage startups, it was made, you know, I was doing this alongside my degree. Okay. So it wasn't ever to the same extent. It wasn't ever, you know, um, a full-time job. It was just more really of a hobby, you know, though I loved, and I still do love biochemistry, I couldn't see myself working nine to five or however long you need to work in a lab hmm. doing those sort of experiments. And that sort of lifestyle just wasn't for me. I thought it was a little bit too slow. Okay. And, um, you know, coming from a back, you know, my, my, both my parents, for example, uh, are serial entrepreneurs. Okay. And it's something, and I understand the struggle of that sort of lifestyle. Um, I understand, I appreciate the uncertainty, but I can also appreciate the, the joy and performance that they get from the work that they do because it is their own work. And so from a very young age, I've always wanted to be a, a, a creator or a inventor. In fact, my, you know, my first, my first dream job when I was about eight or seven, seven or eight was to be an inventor. I just wanted to create things and bring them to market. I guess the sad reality of working in a, in a lab is that you rarely see um, how your research translates into real world impact wow. uh, by sitting behind, you know, a, a bench. You know, that sort of, that visibility only really comes from people, I don't know, it, for most innovations, it never happens. No. For most research projects, it just ends with a paper that's been published and that's it. And I really wanted to sit between the science and the world. You know, I wanted to be able to say that um, I took this technology. Maybe I wasn't the person who invented it, but you know, I took this technology to the market and as a result benefited uh, people and the planet and animals as a result. So, um, yeah, so I, I, I appreciate we've completely sidetracked from the question. No, not so. I guess for me, you know, my primary motivation to get involved with business development and I just wanted to sink my teeth in and get as much experience as possible. So, um, you know, at that time, Oxford perhaps wasn't the most entrepreneurial um, university in the world, but it, it, it's certainly improving. Um, but I just so happened to find myself working with some amazing people who are still now in, in, in the Sonic world. Uh, and yeah, and, and was able to offer them an extra pair of hands, another brain. And at the same time, was also looking into consulting. So okay. working for strategy consultants and management consultancy firms uh, to really hone that craft of business development. You know, I come from a science background. I've literally got no clue how businesses worked at that time and really wanted to learn and really wanted to be able to make myself the best person to sit between the innovation at the bench to real world, you know, to, to the real world application. And, um, yeah, I just found myself in all sorts of odd jobs and uh, helping other businesses out wherever I could. And, you know, actually I applied uh, for, I won't mention them by name, but, you know, probably the most famous uh, strategy consulting firm and okay. yeah. as an intern and, you know, did that. And I had an amazing time, met some amazing people, 
but just realized it, it, it wasn't for me. Um, I didn't want to help other businesses that yeah, perhaps weren't doing the best thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that you know, and these other businesses, you don't know what impact they're having on the environment and no. on people. Uh, and a lot of these businesses have re- of recent, you know, actually yeah, months have come under fire for doing things unethically, and I didn't want to be involved in that. Uh, I'd much rather do something for myself so yeah. that I could know exactly what's going in, what's coming out, and the impact that's having. So, yeah, um, didn't take up the offer, the, the full-time no. job offer in the end. And that was this is all preceded, I guess, yeah, founding Better Nature. Um, but I think what it did teach me from the very, it was not an easy decision to make, in fact, um, and yeah, in fact, actually, you know, Better Nature was, a, you know, had, had been incorporated for about eight months okay. before I fully turned down the offer. Um, but I think what that experience taught me was you just gotta, you just gotta go with your gut and you can't, you can't, you shouldn't listen. You know, people's feedback is important. People's mm-hmm. advice is important. You gotta listen to your own. Exactly. Your own voice. Yeah. Yeah. You gotta listen to your own voice and just back yourself. Mm. Like, you know, who was I to believe as a 22 year old that I could potentially you know, change the world? But uh, that's something I've always wanted. You know, I don't know. Maybe not uh, change the changing the world is a big statement, but you know, like, yeah. take, who was take I to believe that right I could direction. actually mm. exactly? You know, I was able to actually help people, um, but I wanted to, mm. and I thought that better nature was the best way for me to do that. So I just went in and <laughs> who knows if it actually turns out to be, you know, the right decision. We'll, we'll never know. Uh, you, but you won't know unless a, you get a try with you. So exactly. And I've yeah. had, I've had a phenomenal time, learned amazing things, met amazing people. So yeah, no regrets. <laughs> well, we were speaking before we started recording just about the, the fast paced nature of, of the business and you know, the ongoing challenges that, that you're facing. So it, it sounds like you're, you know, you're really, thriving and you know you feel like you've made the right decision and it's obviously a, a really exciting time for, for better nature as well in terms of the the investment that you've, you've just raised so i know you com- completed a funding round on um, on cedars for for over um one and a half million pounds i think it was it was just over a week that you got the all the investment which was over 120 percent of, of what you were looking for so yeah, so, yeah, a phenomenal <laughs> response. Did you expect it to be quite that um, that adamant? Uh, absolutely not. Um, you know, we we we'd secured about one point three million of the one point six that we're looking for from outside investors before we went on Cedars. Okay. Um, you know, Cedars was just an unparalleled opportunity for us to not only get the name of Better Nature out there, uh, but to, in, in a way. I guess solidify the community that we've built, right? And to get our our whether it's our you know social media followers or our newsletter followers, our customers, you know, involved in the business, to make them feel truly part of what we were trying to do here at Best mm-hmm. Future. Um, so that's why we went on Cedars, and we just did not expect the yeah, we just did not expect just how warm the audience was going to be, you know, typically Cedars gives um, one week to businesses to raise privately. Mm-hmm. So off the campaign, 
Yes. Um, so for example, for the first seven of the eight days that you mentioned, you couldn't actually see us on Cedars. If you went on Cedars and you searched better nature, you wouldn't actually be able to see us. The only way people could invest in those seven days is if we shared a link with them mm. prior and they signed up via that link. And in that seven days alone, from the people that we had, you know, had to sign up through this link, that we, you know, we didn't run any marketing on social media or anything about because it, it just didn't make sense. Um, it was just through newsletters and our newsletter on social media. And so literally just from know, existing customers and people that have bought the product and, and knew of you organically, as it were. Exactly, exactly. From that alone, we had hit ninety percent or ninety-five percent of our target, um, and that was within the first seven days. Such that when we actually went live on Cedars to the wider Cedars community, mm -hmm. um, we weren't <laughs> like we were there for forty hours. We were literally there for two days. And it was done. That's incredible. That's incredible. And, and in terms of the the plans for the capital that you've you've raised, what what are the priorities with with those funds, then, Chris? Yeah, uh, it's it's super exciting, and to have to have the money in the bank and to be able to execute on the roadmap that we have, it is a very very packed schedule. Okay. Um, there's no, yeah, it's just impossible for for you know, for, yeah, <laughs> it's going to be very busy, uh, but really really exciting. <laughs> And I, you know, I think the priorities are for us to really establish ourselves as a mainstream meat-free brand. Mm. You know? um, we've we've done really well online, phenomenally well on platforms like Amazon through our own online store. But we want to be a, a go-to brand for people looking for all natural meat alternatives, for meat delicious and natural meat-free products that consumers can eat on a daily basis and not necessarily feel bad about it because they appreciate and they can see <clears throat> very simply what goes in. Mm -hmm. um, and I think there's a lot of obscurity and a, there's a, a lack of transparency in the meat-free category, just generally speaking. And I want, you know, here at Nature, we want to bring, we want to bring products that would just invite more people okay. into the category. So, um, <clears throat> so it's really nailing the launch of our brand new range of products, uh, which will be available to purchase in June Great. from our website to start off with. Uh, but we're having exciting conversations with all the biggest uh, retailers here in the UK, um, and to, you know, of course, support that launch with the necessary marketing and brand building, and to invest into developing new products because we're really just <clears throat> scratch, you know, scratching the tip of the iceberg or scratching the surface of what of the vision that we have for Tempe with this new range of four products. And there's just so much more that we have, um, so many more ideas that we'd love to explore and we can't wait to take those products to our customers too. Yeah, I can't wait to see it. I mean, I think like you say, the plant-based space is very, very competitive, but the, you know, the Tempe offering is something different and you know all the, the products that you mentioned in the in the roadmap are, are well they, they do look exciting and, and they do look to offer something different that the market doesn't have and I, I don't know if it's just the uk based market that has less kind of tempeh based products i don't know if it's more prevalent elsewhere in the world or is it is it the same universally do you think i'd say outside of indonesia yeah. <laughs> which yeah. is obviously where tempeh originated 
the UK, and I'd say probably the UK and the Netherlands are probably the two most um, advanced oh, really? nations when it comes to their appreciation and understanding of tempeh, mm. which is still very, very poor. You know, if I go out, if I walk out of my flat and I run a survey, um, I'd probably, of 100 people that I interviewed, I reckon five would say, oh yes, I know what tempeh is. Mm. And maybe an additional 15 people will say, oh yeah, I've heard of it, but don't actually know. Because when you start to quiz them about it, they, they can't give you an answer. They get confused with, say, tofu, for mm. example. Mm. Um, so I think there's a huge opportunity to be captured, not just in the UK, um, but in, in the rest of the world too. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, just t- touching on the, the wider market in, in general, um, you know, it's been reported that um, the Western world is nearly at the at tipping point with, with meat and that by 2025, you know, it could be the, the point where the plant-based alternatives, you know, do do take over and, and you know, meat starts to, to decline. Do, do, you, do you see that as, as, a, as a realistic time frame? I want to believe that. Mm. I really do. But I, I think people still don't appreciate just how big meat is mm. and just how big the monster that we're trying to face is. You know, I think even with Pret and Subway and you know all these mainstream QSRs pushing the vegan message, vegan is still probably 2% of the total protein volume or, mm. or less. 2% is probably the most optimistic, wow. actually. I'd say it's like 1% of the total protein consumed by consumers today, whether it's in food service or retail. So to say that we're on the tipping point is a bit of an exaggeration. Mm. It's, um, it's a long road ahead. But but what I can say, right, is that the meat free the meat industry is built on very, very fragile ground. The machine that that we have created over the last hundred years really of industrial meat production is incredibly uh, sensitive to shifts in the market. And we know that from the dairy industry. You know, plant-based dairy is a huge success story, but it was decades in the making. You know, right now, um, plant-based dairy probably is about 15 to 20% mm. of total you know, milk yes. sales, or, you know, you're allowed to call it that, but yes, uh, it's, it's, it's preposterous, but you know, <laughs> yeah. whatever. Yeah. It, it is yeah. 15 to 20% of that market. Mm. And already the, I think it was like two of the top three, you know, don't quote me on this, you know, do your right. own research, but, uh, I'm on the dairy space, <laughs> but two, I think of the three largest dairy producers or dairy processes in the U S went bankrupt last year. Wow because of that shift in the top line demand. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the, the machine is built on huge volume and animal agriculture is so inefficient that you just need huge, huge, huge scale to make it in any way efficient, mm. in, in, in any way affordable. You know, and and prompted by, by government subsidies as well. Exactly, mm. even with you know, yeah. the, the subsidies. So though, Yes, currently vegan protein is one to 2% of the market. Um, 
perhaps this is what they meant by that tipping point. Perhaps mm -hmm. if we grow penetration to any greater than 2%, we start the snowball effect whereby the production of meat is no longer profitable. No. And I think Which I is, think the tipping point will will come when the the alternatives are as appealing as as the, the meat products at the moment. And I think the the way technology is moving, and you know, all all the the plant based companies within this space, I think we are moving towards that at, at quite a pace. You know, just just from my own ex experience, um, my my brother's a diehard meat eater. I'm, mm. I'm vegan. He's a diehard meat eater, and he he, he um, came around for some food, and we we, we fed him plant based burger, and didn't tell him, and it was that good that he didn't realise. So, you know, it's um, wow. it's 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 getting there, and I think it's, it's almost that acceptance that people need that acceptance to say, well, hang on, it is it is you know taste wise comparable, and then it comes down to you know looking at, at the impact that that meat has and taking it to a an intellectual level but you know to, to connect with people first of all uh, you know on their relationship with me but um no it's, mm. it's it's certainly moving in the right direction but i think as you say it's um there's, there's some way to go absolutely and there's just but there's so many it is a long road ahead but there's just the confluence of so many different factors is driving this unprecedented uh, consumer behavior shift towards mm. the greater and greater adoption of plant-based foods. I mean, it, it is the climate crisis, right? That <laughs> the scientists have been telling us about for decades, you know, literally about four or five decades now um, that we're just about to, just about waking up to. There's the, um, the biodiversity collapse sort of, uh, crisis, which is, I think, actually greater, but obviously related to the, mm. the climate collapse. Mm. Um, so, so the climate crisis, and obviously, just the health crisis as well that <laughs> we find ourselves in. And with the studies published that show a direct correlation between, um, yeah, I guess the yeah, chronic health disorders and your susceptibility to pandemics, and mm. obviously the uh, relationship between the meat consumption and the origination of pandemics, I think that has opened a lot of people's eyes to eating plant-based meat um, or eating meat alternatives or just not eating meat yes. <laughs> yeah. as a solution, as, as sort of the golden, the silver bullet, sorry, the silver bullet to so many of the existential crises that we mm. face as, as, a, as a species. Absolutely, absolutely. And in, in terms of the kind of ecological impact, um, just bringing it back to, to, to better nature, I know mm -hmm. that um, you, you've, well, been the, the world's first plastic neutral uh, meat alternative brand. So I, I, I saw that. I was intrigued how you you kind of got to that point ahead of some of the, the more established players. It's honestly that, that we didn't look for plastic neutral. Hmm to get that accolade okay like that was not we weren't screening oh what could be the world's first in what you know yeah. we just wanted to do the right thing you were just following the ethics and the values of the company and that, that's what came out exactly um and it just turned out we were which suggests to me 
I don't know. It, it was, in a way, obviously great to have that accolade and to be able to shout about it, but also, in a way, slightly depressing that yeah. a five-month-old brand can be the world's first in doing something that's environmentally friendly in an industry that, in a large part, is driven by um, sort of preaching you know, the environmental, environmental so sustainability yeah. message. So, because it wasn't difficult. It wasn't difficult at all. You know, of all the things we've done today, it was probably, you know, it, it doesn't even, it doesn't even create a signal <laughs> of the challenges that we had to overcome. It it's just so choosing easy. the right supplier and working with the right materials. It's, you know, it's not even that. It's just finding the right partner that was willing to offset our plastic. Mm-hmm. And then there's so many of them out there. Mm-hmm. And from a commercial perspective, it wasn't even that expensive. No. You know, and it didn't make a dent, really. It, it was a no-brainer. It was mm-hmm. like, it was. we didn't even have to consider it. It was just like, okay, wow, this is fantastic. Um, so we've actually, uh, you know, no one knows about this. And I'm not so sure if I should be telling this. So go on. Mark, you know, if this does go in, and I get feedback from Ellen that I need to yes. cut it out. Then yeah, yeah, absolutely. We can do some magic. Yes, but, I'm sure. <laughs> but, you know, assuming that I can talk about it, you know, we are doubling our commitment to go plastic negative. Wow. Uh, for our new range. So starting, starting this month, we are going plastic negative. And we're taking one step further. We're going carbon negative as well. So we're offsetting two times the carbon that our products pr- produce okay. to be made. Yeah. Uh, from from the environment and i mean okay it helps that our products from a base perspective are very carbon efficient anyway okay. yes right it's, it's obviously not beef it's not cheese it's not lamb it's you know it's it's tempeh mm-hmm. <laughs> uh which is very very has a very 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 small climate impact okay but we still wanted to do our bit and you know doing but in, but in a way you know doing our bit may not be enough because meat consumption is still rising and the climate crisis, you know, as, as a member of the Western world that has that we have these luxuries that just other people don't, mm. we need to be doing the heavy lifting because we benefited from the system that we created. Yes. You know, how, can we, how can we tell a nation that's industrializing to say, oh, no, you need to stop industrializing when the UK pioneered industrialization mm. you know, in, in, in the early 19th century? Yes. Right. In the 1800s. How can we say that and stop them from experiencing the rapid economic growth that that brings? But what we can do is leverage the position that we're in and appreciate that we are. Yeah, that, that, that we've got some serious work to do and it has it has to be us. It can't be anyone else because you know, we're the only people that have the uh, capacity to, to, to do a lot of this heavy lifting. I think you're right. I think I think it's it's, it's uh, yeah up towards in the Western world, isn't it, to to lead the way and um, yeah I think the, the the products that are in development now you know will will change the market forever, but there's no there's no going back. So so mm. yeah. So Chris, so, so just finally then tell me tell me a bit more about the the new products at uh, Better Nature in the future. What what have you got uh, lined up? Yeah, uh, so our new range will be launching in June, as I mentioned earlier. Uh, we'll include our, our barbecue ribs, so our southern style barbecue ribs, our um, smoky rashes, our sweet and smoky rashes, 
our traditional tender roast bites and our shawarma spice kebab strips. So those will be going out in June. And as for what we have in the pipeline for the future, we're toying a few ideas, um, but it, it will be truly exciting. And uh, we're also working on our better matrix, which is effectively this, um, this, this ingredient that we've developed for ourselves that it doesn't is made using tempeh fermentation. And, and I think tempeh fermentation will be a core element of better nature forever, uh, but is made in such a way with our proprietary technology such that it barely resembles tempeh wow. as an end product and is more akin to your hyper-realistic you know, meat alternatives. Okay. So our ambition with that product is to really offer protein without compromise and to be able to offer consumers with great tasting meat alternatives that just so happen to also be all natural and not to have to, and to, yeah, to, to remove that compromise uh, for our customers. So yeah, keep, <laughs> keep an eye out for that. Um, yeah. It's going to be taken beyond meat and, and th those types of uh, companies or products then potentially. I, I don't see this as a tit for tat battle no, no. against other plant-based no. meat brands. It's it's trying to grow the accessibility of the category, get new people to the shelf, stop preaching to the vegetarians and vegans. You know, get mm. more flexitarians in, get more meat eaters in, and only that way we'll be able to have you know move the needle and have the impact that we're looking for um, in the aforementioned aforementioned you know multitude of problems that we face <laughs> well i think if, if your list of products is anything to go by my mouth's watering i know it's lunchtime now but um yeah i uh, i will definitely be watching uh, the supermarket shelves and look forward to, to seeing uh, seeing better nature out there and uh, yeah hopefully seeing you go on to do uh, bigger and better things so yeah exciting times thank you thank you so much mark yeah, yeah. <laughs> i'm looking forward to that as well great stuff well, thanks very much for joining me, Chris. And um, yeah, hopefully we will um, speak at some point in the future. Yeah, absolutely. And um, you know, to, to your audience, you know, if they want to get in touch with us here at Better Nature, uh, the best place would be you know either through our LinkedIn, uh, through my LinkedIn, so I'm yep. Christopher Kong, um, through uh, through our website as well. You can message us directly there. Uh, if you want to stay up to date with what we're up to please sign up to our newsletter. Uh, you can do that on our website and please follow us on Instagram. You can follow us on at betternature underscore. Absolutely. I will add all of those links so people can find you, but uh, yeah, great stuff. Okay. Well, thanks again, Chris. All right. Thank you so much, Mark. Yes. <laughs>